Uh, today, I think we're, we're really going to probably just stay in John 3.16. I don't think we're going to get past it, but we, we might uh, if we uh, can make good time. I, I do want to spend a little bit of time, though, making sure that we've got John 3.16 in context. And so what I've got is a kind of a, a summary of what we talked about last time. So we're, we're in John 3. This is Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he came to Jesus by night. In, in John, night is not usually primarily a time so much as it's a state of darkness. Uh, so Nicodemus, one of the uh, leaders of the land, uh, John is immediately telling us that he is in darkness, and in darkness in John is you know, not understanding the things of God. Uh, this is really surprising because the Pharisees were, were probably the most religious group of their, their day. They were theological conservatives. They subscribed to the most literal interpretation of revealed scripture of any Jewish group, that at least major group at the time that we're, that we're aware of. Um, and they valued scriptural knowledge. You know, a Pharisee like Nicodemus would have memorized uh, certainly the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, probably significant other sections as well. <clears throat> um, he would have extensively studied you know, different interpretations of, of the scriptures. Um, you know, they were also not just dedicated to understanding the scriptures, but the, to trying to practice it uh, correctly. Uh, they, they sought to strictly obey the law in its entirety. And we'll, we'll see this when we kind of look at some of the issues with the Sabbath in, in John. But they, you know, if, if the Sabbath says do not work, they had very strict definitions to make sure they didn't even get close to anything that might resemble working. Um, so the, the, their lives really were structured around trying to strictly obey the law. Um, doctrinally, they were probably the closest uh, group to Jesus at, at the time. And I, I would kind of venture to say that you know, uh, first century Pharisees were to Judaism as conservative Christianity is to Christianity today. today. They're probably the closest to, to what conservative Christianity would be like. So it, it, it's really easy, you know, kind of with simplistic uh, descriptions of the Pharisees to kind of write them off as this you know, group of hypocrites that looked down on those that didn't measure up to their own efforts to try to observe the law. And while that's true, um, we don't give them credit for how hard they tried to do the right thing with their own efforts. Um, we, we, re we really do need to kind of let, let it sink in that they were probably trying as hard to do the right thing as, as, as any group in history. Um, so Nicodemus' strict devotion to at least mostly right religious practices, um, you know, that was enough to get him onto the Sanhedrin. That was a group of the, uh, 70 religious leaders kind of in charge of the nation. Uh, Pharisees were a minority on that. Most of the, the Sanhedrin would have been Sadducees, uh, kind of a more liberal sect that really only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. So he really was kind of at the top of Judaism at the time. Um, the, the point I really want to make is that you know, Nicodemus is a warning to us. You know, he, he would fit very well into a, a church. I think if, if we were to see someone practicing Christianity, the way that Nicodemus was practicing Judaism, we'd probably look up to them very much. Um, <clears throat> if anyone's efforts could make them right with God, it would have been Nicodemus's. Um, and if we think that the errors of the Pharisees are confined to first century Judaism, we really don't understand the tenacity of the unregenerate heart to turn God's grace into self-justification. So the, there's a sad irony here. And by the way, 
Irony is something that John goes out of his way to point out. And I, I think that uh, this is one of many instances where John is kind of showing us an irony. It was uh, Nicodemus's efforts to please God that kept him from saving faith. Um, you know, he, it, was, it was his own efforts, and he, he saw them as measuring up. He should have, when he, he sees the law in the Old Testament, he should have seen, I couldn't measure up to this. I need to look to God for mercy. I need to look for God for another way. Um, that, that's the, the real point of the law as it's uh, explained in the New Testament. Um, <clears throat> when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, it's really his confidence in his own works that uh, Jesus is focusing in on. So let's look at you know, kind of Nicodemus' second two statements. or Sorry, let's look at uh, Jesus' first two statements. The first thing that Jesus says to Nicodemus is, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So when Jesus is saying that, he's saying that you know, all of these efforts that you have put out, that they haven't even gotten you on the right track. You, know, you, you don't need to fix them. You need to abandon them. Um, there's not anything that's worth repairing or amending. The second thing that Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So by appealing to water and the Spirit, Jesus is pointing Nicodemus to a really clear passage in Ezekiel that's talking about the new birth. Uh, I, I would certainly say it's one of the clearest descriptions of the new birth that, that we have in the Old Testament. We looked at that closely last time. Um, the, the point is that God provides a cleansing. And God's Spirit gives a heart of flesh, a heart that's responsive to God in place of a heart of stone that's only hardened against God. And that's what, what Nicodemus needs to begin the, the, um, to have a relationship with God. Clear focus of what Jesus is saying is that Nicodemus' efforts haven't even set him on the right track. If anyone could have earned a right standing with God, it would be someone like Nicodemus. Um, and I think it's just profitable to step back and listen to another Pharisee. Uh, this would be would be a Pharisee who would have been younger uh, at the time that he is kind of writing about here, but very much on the same track and very much on the same trajectory as Nicodemus. And this is in Philippians 3, 4. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to have confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So just as Paul's world was really turned upside down when he encountered Jesus, Nicodemus' world is being turned upside down. Or better, their worlds are being turned right side up. Um, so listen to Nicodemus. You'll hear someone who's perplexed in the, the last two questions that he asks. Uh, he only makes three statements, so th these are the uh, only two questions that he asks. How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's uh, womb and be born? So he, he doesn't understand what he can do to bring about the new birth. He doesn't understand that he's depending on God. And when Jesus says that 
you know, he's dependent on the actions of the Spirit, and he compares the Holy Spirit to the wind blowing where it will that's outside of our control. Nicodemus asks, how can these things be? He, he understands what Jesus is saying, but he doesn't understand how this could be out of his control. He doesn't understand how save, salvation can be outside of himself. None of his efforts can make him right with God. He's completely helpless. He's completely dependent on the wind. In, in the Greek, that's actually the same word as the Spirit, uh, blowing and affecting him, to use Jesus' metaphor. He's got no control over the wind, where the wind blows. He recognizes what Jesus is saying, but he never indicates that he accepts it in this conversation. Um, at least when his last statement is uttered, he can't accept it yet. And later on in John, I think we see very positive uh, indications that Nicodemus has come to accept this over time, but it uh, took a while to sink in, at least somewhat understandably. We're seeing one of the many instances in the gospel where John forcefully presents what I would call monergism. Um, monergism is a word that I'd, I'd like to be able to use, so I'm going to define it here. Uh, it simply means that salvation is entirely from God with no contribution from us except for the sin that, needs, that necessitates salvation in the first place. Uh, Calvinism is probably the most common name for you know, this part of, of uh, theology, although Calvin actually had relatively little to do with the development of that thought. I think Augustinianism would probably be a better name for it. Uh, Doctrines of Grace is uh, another good name. <clears throat> Nicodemus's ob objection is really understandable. It's a very human objection. You know, and I, I suspect that all of us are at least somewhat uncomfortable with the idea that God is sovereign in salvation and that you know, there, there's nothing that we can do to, uh, to bring it about. You know, the wind blows where it wishes. We hear it sound, but we don't know where it comes from or where it goes. But you know, Consider what uh, Jesus says next. You know, after explaining the new, the new birth is something that's done by God's Spirit apart from any human effort, what does Jesus say? Does he say something like, well, you're either elected or not. You know, good luck. Uh, no. <laughs> you know, does he say, you know, the, the book of life was written before the foundations of the earth. There's not really much I can do about it, not much you can do about it at this point. It's true, but that's not at all what Jesus says. Um, and, and you don't find a statement like that in Scripture. Um, Jesus says, you know, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Um, you know, Jesus is right there in front of Nicodemus. You know, look at him. See him as a precious Savior. See life in him. Believe in him and have eternal life. Nothing stands between Nicodemus and the free offer of the gospel except for Nicodemus. <clears throat> Um, let's see, the, the last thing I'd just like to remind us of before we uh, get started, we're going to go back a little bit to verse 12. I'll, I'll read it for us. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? The way that I read that, uh, there's a lot of different readings of, of this, but you know, I, I think that what you know, the earthly thing that Nicodemus really doesn't get is human inability. He's his entire life is a testimony to the fact that he doesn't get it because he's, he's convinced himself that he has done enough to merit something from God. And you know, the, the focus of you know, Jesus kind of in the first 15 verses in the chapter is trying to tear down human inability. And I, I think that's the earthly thing that Nicodemus doesn't get. Now, realizing that humans are unable to save themselves isn't enough for salvation on its own. But it's a really good starting point, and it's definitely the starting point that Nicodemus needs. Um, 
you know, if he understood the helplessness of humans to produce something savable, he wouldn't have depended on his own efforts, and instead, he would look to God for salvation. The Old Testament promises that anyone that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Nicodemus needs to recognize his inability and his desperate need, to, and he needs to look away from himself and entirely to God for salvation. And that salvation is there, and for Nicodemus, God's salvation is standing right in front of him, but he needs to know what, what that salvation is. And that knowledge can only be revealed from God. That's the heavenly things that Jesus is about to talk about in the next half of this section. Um, and so we're kind of moving on from earthly things, which we really focused on last time, to, to heavenly things, which is going to be the focus of this week and, and next week. So we're, I'm going to read John 3, 16 through 21. I don't think we're going to get out of 16 today. But before I read that, I want to make a quick note. Um, there's a pretty serious disagreement among theologians regarding who is talking at this point. Uh, what's going on is that the language moves from first person in John 3, 1 through 15, and it kind of moves into uh, third person. And you know, evidently, uh, scholars at least consider the phrases to be uncharacteristic of the way that Jesus speaks. And so there, scholars are kind of all over the place, basically, on where Jesus stops talking in, in this particular section. Uh, some of them would say that Jesus stops talking at 15, and John 3.16 should not be in red letters if you have a red letter Bible. Um, and others say that you know, Jesus kind of continues talking through the end. Um, I don't know for sure. I would lean towards kind of a, a hybrid of, of those two. I think that we have something that's a little bit closer to you know, uh, statements going back and forth in 3, 1 through 15. And I think starting in 16, we probably have the Apostle John summarizing what Jesus said and maybe adding some of his own kind of theological thought to it. Um, I'm not sure about that. It could be the words of Jesus. Uh, the good news is it doesn't really matter. It's inspired scripture. And so whether Jesus says it or whether... Um, John says it. The, I think the, the best way to think about it is this is probably a long conversation. I would imagine that Nicodemus and Jesus went back and forth for a few hours. And John is rewriting this many decades later. If, the, you know, if this afternoon Katie were to ask me what Tim preached about, she is not going to get a 45-minute recitation of Tim's sermon. Sorry. <laughs> I wish I could do it. <laughs> Um, she would probably get about a three-minute summary of, of Tim's sermon, and some of the words and phrases in that summary would probably sound a lot more like me than Tim. And I think that we've got the same thing here. I think that, that John is kind of summarizing the gist of what Jesus is saying, but he, he might be kind of interjecting a, a little bit of his own words and phrases. Yes? Nope. There's no quotation marks in the Greek. <laughs> and the commentaries I read were all over the map. Some of them were you know, violently insisting that the entire thing is you know, Jesus' words. Some of them... Yeah. And, and you know, th these are conservative scholars that... You know, so some of the conservative scholars would say that Jesus stops at 315. And some would, would put it a little bit elsewhere. So it's kind of all over the place. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned, excuse me, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. So the main idea in 3, 1 through 15 is human inability. How does John 3.16 connect with human inability? Uh, That's kind of the first thing I think is is worth looking at. There's an implication in this verse that if God didn't love the world and if God didn't give his one and only son that the world wouldn't perish, that the world would perish. Um, And so I think that's very much kind of continuing on in in the idea of human inability. This is God's solution to human inability. God's going to step in and do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. It's kind of vaguely indicated in a veiled way with the reference to the snake being lifted up in the wilderness, but but John's 3.16 is much more clear. The verse starts with the word for. Um... And that tells us that this is kind of connecting uh, to what came before. Um, So verse 15 states that all who believe in the Son of God, that that Son who's lifted up, will have eternal life. So I think we we can kind of maybe think of a summary of 3, 1 through 15. The first thing that I would put in in that brief summary is that you must be born again, that that's the the only way to to enter the kingdom of God. Um, And the reason that you need to be born again, the reason that you need a, a spiritual new birth is because of human inability. Um, and that new birth involves looking to Jesus. Jesus and the Israelites were saved from the mortal wounds in the desert by a snake raised from the pole. The spiritual new birth will consist in looking towards the Son of Man being lifted up uh, for salvation in the same way that a, uh, an Israelite bitten by a snake would look. So, be a simpler summary. Humankind is helpless in it to save itself God provided a means of salvation. Why does looking to, uh, to Jesus save us from sin uh, as looking to the bronze serpent saved from physical death? The reason is that for God so loved the world. Um, so I think that's what the, the word for it is doing there. What about so? A lot of commentators will actually say that so is kind of the, the center of this verse or the emphasis of it. Um, it would read fine if, if it were dropped, but it, the, the, its presence there... Uh, really emphasizes the extent of God's love. I think the, the main point of this verse is how big God's love is. And we're going to come back to that idea quite a bit later. So that's what the word uh, so is doing. It's, it's amplifying the extent of God's love. Um, a lot of Christians would, this would be one of the first verses that they memorize. It's one of the best known verses in the Bible. D.A. Carson kind of had a, a, a fun statement. He said that you know, John 3.16 at one point was the, the best-known verse in the Bible that's no longer true. It's now Matthew 7.1, which is, judge not that you might not be judged. Um, but I think, I think it is kind of, this is certainly a verse that, you know, 
we should love, but it's also kind of telling that it, it's such a, a, a popular verse because you know, every age will get kind of something about Christianity wrong. And one of the, the significant errors in our age is to overemphasize God's love at the expense of other attributes of God. Um, and that isn't to say that love isn't a very important attribute of God. It clearly is. But there's a, you know, a lot of different attributes of God. And this one is, is certainly overemphasized and it's in fact very often used to try to um, eliminate other attributes of God that are equally clearly uh, taught in the scriptures. So I uh, got a list of attributes of God. Uh, Mark might uh, make some corrections to this. I got this off of Wikipedia. But uh, I, I did look through it, and I actually thought it was a, a decent job doing a list. The one thing that I kind of jumped out to me that wasn't there is justice. And so I read a little bit more carefully. And to Wikipedia's credit, um, justice is there. It's kind of built into uh, righteousness. Uh, so there... Um, anyway, uh, I'd certainly be interested in hearing Mark's thoughts on, on this list, but it didn't look terribly bad to me, and it was at least easy to get. And so I, I did a little bit of organizing with this list. I thought, you know, which of these attributes you know, are kind of popular you know, among people that might be nominal Christians at least? And certainly goodness, holiness, love, omnipotence, providence would kind of be popular. And uh, a lot of them would be a little bit less unpopular, um, or a little bit un unpopular. Uh, I, I put eternity there because we we tend to think. Uh, I think popular thinking it sort of tends to think of God as developing, not necessarily being a completely eternal being, because that's a very difficult concept to grasp. How God could be uh, really eternal. People very often don't see God as gracious. They see God as wanting them to you know, conform to a certain standard that they don't want to conform to. His, his graciousness certainly isn't uh, seen as, as much. His, his nearness certainly isn't seen, or you know, his infinitude. Um, I, I should have sovereignty up there. One of the reasons, that, in the unpopular ones, one of the reasons that I put... Uh, uh, I meant to put sovereignty and unpopular. That's a little typo in my notes. One of the reasons that I put that there is that to, to many kind of nominal Christians, they don't consider that God could be both good and sovereign at the same time. Uh, and that's because you need to understand why uh, creation exists to be able to understand how God can, can be both good and sovereign uh, with the world as, as it is. So... What I'm going to do next is we're going to step outside of John for a little bit, and I'd like to look at love before we kind of come back to John and, and keep going with John 3.16. And so what I'm going to develop here is based on a book by D.A. Carson called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And that title might kind of jump out at you a little bit because you would think that if, if any of God's attributes ought to be simple, it would be love. But uh, God's love is a complicated subject, um, and in, in D.A. Carson's words, I, I would actually say it's a difficult doctrine. And it, it, it's particularly difficult, I think, for a lot of people that are familiar with Christianity but not Christians today you know, because of our culture's rejection of a lot of the other clear attributes of God, uh, God's justice, God's wrath, uh, things like that. And it's difficult because of the problem of evil and suffering. Um, so Carson has five different categories of, of God's love. I'll, 
I'll, I'll deal with what I mean by that when we, we finish them, but let me just kind of show you some examples. So, so in other words, there's kind of five different categories that we might put you know, manifestations of God's love into. And so one of the ones that, th this is one that you might not have even guessed at, uh, would, would be on the list, but I'll, I'll start with it. Did you have a question? The difficult doctrine of the love of God. It, it's short. It's very readable. I, I would really recommend it. Uh, it's, a, it's a book that would make you think. I, I enjoyed reading it when I was uh, writing this a few years ago. <clears throat> so um, I'm, I'm not giving all the scriptures for these just in the interests of time, but I'm just giving a couple that I, I think will kind of establish these. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And... The, for the Father loves the Son and shows him that all that he himself is doing. These are among many verses that point to what we would call inner Trinitarian love. And that's the love between the different members of the Trinity. And this love is very different than other types of love that God expresses. What, what's really different about it is that this love is deserved. The Son deserves to be loved by the Father. The Father deserves to be loved by the Son. The Spirit deserves to be loved by the Father and the Son. Um, Uh, we'll, we'll do the least with this one, but it is worth you know, kind of mentioning that it's there. Another type of love, and I, I want to give this to us in context. I've kind of highlighted the important parts. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the, and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. There's a lot of other places we could go to for this. This would be providential love. Uh, and th this is you know, the love of God in caring for, for everyone, not just his people, but, but caring for all, whether they're, they're good or, or bad. Another type of love that Carson points out, and I'm going to give us a few more examples of this because this one's a little bit... Um, more difficult, especially uh, for, for Reformed, but I, I think it's important to, to see. Uh, in 2 Peter 3.9, we're told, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So I'm just going to kind of summarize these because there's not room on the slide. Uh, Ezekiel 33.11 says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? And then Second Peter 3, 9. Oh, that is not cop. That's not right in my notes. Um, okay, good. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those, stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And so Carson calls this God's salvific stance towards his fallen world. We don't want to take uh, the doctrines of grace and kind of use them to trump Scripture. We, we need to look at, at clear teaching of Scripture and, and, and try our, our best to, uh, to kind of give equal weight 
to, to things that are, are clearly taught in Scripture. So there, I think to take these verses seriously, we have to see that there's a sense in which God is disheartened when the gospel is freely presented to someone and that person willfully, on their own, chooses to reject it. Um, yes? Yep. <laughs> yeah. And Okay. Okay. Yeah. So. I do too. It, it's it's kind of difficult to put all this together. Um, <clears throat> so just for for the, the benefit of everyone, Mark's comment was that you know, when you say something to the effect of uh, <clears throat> you know, God is disheartened, you should say God is disheartened as it were because of God's uh, simplicity, your God or sorry, his, uh, unchanging character, impassibility. Um, you, um, you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, the, the next one that Carson identifies, uh, I'm reading from Malachi 1, 2 through 4. I have loved you, says the Lord, uh, but how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved G Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to the hills in the country and left his heritage uh, to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear them down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Um, you, 
you see in that verse two brothers, and God simply chose to love one and uh, to reject the other, at least in terms of uh, participating in his plan of salvation. And the, the people that descended from that brother uh, were never, uh, were, were kind of constantly enemies of God's people through the, the history of Israel. Um, the, the point is that there isn't you know, anything about Jacob that merits God's love. God simply loved him. And that's more clearly seen in Deuteronomy 7, uh, 6 through 8. For you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other uh, people that the Lord set his love on you to choose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to his fathers that the Lord brought you out of the, uh, out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of uh, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This probably gives the, the closest scripture comes to saying why some are elect and some are not. God loved them. It's not a, an answer that we necessarily find satisfying, but I I think this is probably about as close as you'll get to an answer to that question in Scripture. Ralph? There's absolutely no hint of why these were chosen. No. Nope. Well, right here we've got the hint that he loved them. But why did he love Jacob and not Esau? Um, there's, there's not much in the account to make Jacob more lovable than Esau. <clears throat> uh, these, of course, would be examples of electing love, where God simply chooses some. And this is probably the most controversial uh, of these. I've, I've seen some people criticize the way D.A. Carson word, worded this, but I think if we're careful, uh, this, this does work and uh, is helpful. Uh, it's not gonna, actually going to be important for, for John, but I do want to uh, put it for completeness. As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. So this is the part I want to emphasize. If you keep my commands you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commands and abide in his love. We see a, a similar statement in Jude. This isn't chapters 20 through 21. It's verses 20 through 21 because there's only one chapter in Jude. But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most, to the most holy, um, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for his mercy, um, sorry, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who leads us to eternal life. And I think if we're to take these verses seriously, there, there is a sense in which we can kind of put ourselves into the, the love of God more or, or less, uh, in, in a way at least. And so Carson refers to this kind of as a conditional love. Um, remember, there's a lot more to God's love than this, but there are ways in which uh, God's love is conditional at times, uh, I think is what Carson was arguing here. I want to be really careful with that. Um, the, Carson was really careful to say that the, these aren't five different loves that exist in God. You know, God doesn't kind of sit down and say, okay, I'm going to use this love right now. God's love is kind of one entity, but we see it manifest in five different categories that Carson has kind of put things into. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of summarize them here. And if we emphasize any one of these, we get God's love wrong. Um, for example, if we take inter-Trinitarian love and you kind of emphasize that at the expense of others, I don't think anyone's really likely to do that. But if we were to do that, 
we would see God's love as being something that would be merited because uh, the, the love between the members of the Trinity is perfectly merited. Um, and you know, the love that God has for us is completely unmerited. In fact, it's ill-merited. Um, it's not just that we're sort of neutral entities that neither deserve nor don't deserve love. It's that we're uh, rebels against God who deserve wrath and instead are, are being shown love. Oh, and I did not uh, did not work that uh, with, with animation. Sorry. Um, let's see the second one, providential love. If this type of God's love were to be overemphasized, you'd really kind of move yourself towards deism, um, and that's where God is kind of this neutral force that just sort of um, provides rain on the just and the unjust which God does, but there's so much more to God's love than that. And if, if this were, were overemphasized, you'd really not have a person behind um, you know, the way that God shows love. If you were to take the salvific stance love, um, which, which is, you know, the, the, the verses that I put up are, are very clear that there's a sense in which you know, God is offering the uh, the, the gospel and is disheartened as it were when when people choose to reject it um, and if that is overemphasized you'll very quickly move to arminianism um, and once you've taken on arminianism it's very difficult to you know, avoid open theism um, where god really isn't in control and he's kind of doing his best to save as many as he can um, but your know, god you know human uh, free will kind of trumps God's sovereignty in, in uh, a system like open theism where God doesn't know the outcome of free will decisions. That's the basic idea behind open theism. If you were to just look at electing love and kind of overemphasize that at the, extent, at the expense of other forms of God's love, you'd end up with hyper-Calvinism. Um, hyper-Calvinist, it, it's fundamentally someone who denies the free offer of the gospel. Um, uh, a hyper-Calvinist, if they were traveling through Samaria and met a woman at a well and figured out that she was a woman that was rather immoral, would say, well, there's no signs of God's grace in her. You know, she's not going to respond to the, the, the gospel, so I should not offer the gospel to her. We'll, we'll see Jesus act very differently when we get to chapter 4. Um, another really well-known statement made by someone who's obviously a hyper-Calvinist, when William Carey was you know, trying to establish support to go to India to bring the gospel there, Someone stood up and said, Sir, if God wanted to convert the heathen, he does not need your help to do that. <laughs> and while there's truth to it, that person is overemphasizing you know, God's electing love at the expense of clear teaching of Scripture to take the gospel to the nations. Mark, did you have a question? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I thought I, I, thought I saw a question. I'm sorry. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was Ralph. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and you know, finally, of course, the, the conditional love, you know, this you know, gets overemphasized very quickly by Arminianism. God's love is not earned, at least the love that uh, he, he shows to, to us in saving us. So the, kind of keeping all of this in, in, in balance is really important. It's important to consider the Bible as whole, a whole. 
I think when, whenever you, you come to a scripture that doesn't fit nicely into your theological system, you don't want to just discard that, that what, what the scripture is saying there. Now, if it's just kind of one scripture in isolation and there's lots of other things, maybe that, that verse does need to be understood differently. But you know, when, when something is said a number of times, you don't want to try to negate scripture with theology derived from, from other scripture. Instead, you want to try to uh, look at the Bible as a whole. Okay, so returning to John 3.16. So, uh, by, by the way, just for your, your, your notes, I'll uh, put up the, you know, kind of what, what these manifestations of God's love would, would kind of lead to if, if overemphasized. I, I would certainly have to say that in John 3.16, the sort of love that's being referred to certainly wouldn't be in a Trinitarian love it's not conditional love. There's nothing about the world that conditions love. And it's not providential love. You, the unjust aren't getting more rain after God sent Jesus than bef- before. It, it, it would probably be a, a combination of God's salvific stance. God is providing a means of salvation to everyone. Those that reject it are choosing to do so uh, on their own. They're not being coerced into rejecting it. Um, as well as his electing love. God is providing uh, you know, in, in the atonement, everything that's needed for our salvation. Uh, <clears throat> so with John 3.16, there, there's two different ways that... We, uh, I, I mentioned earlier that the word so is kind of saying that, you know, the, the magnitude of God's love is such, according to this verse. And there's two different ways that we could read that. Um, one of them, if, if we look at world, it would be kind of the scale of God's love. And I'll just kind of rephrase the verse to emphasize that. For God so loved the vast entirety of the world. Certainly is true, um, but I, I don't think that's what the verse is saying. The other way of reading it is to see the world, um, th- this is the Greek word cosmos, and uh, it has more meanings, although uh, world in English actually has the, the same meaning, thankfully, that uh, that I think is important here. But one of the meanings we actually see in the you know, magazine Cosmopolitan, that's the kind of the world system apart from God. Uh, and they're, they're taking the Greek word there in, in that term, you know, cosmopolitan. Um, and in, that's how John usually uses the word world. He doesn't mean the planet uh, when he says world typically. He means uh, the, the system that is living, you know, uh, without thinking about God in its actions. And so this way of reading John 3.16 would say, for God so loved the, this evil world that's continuously living in open rebellion to him that he provided a means of salvation through Christ. If you ask yourself, which one of these magnifies the love of God more, I think it's really clear that the second one does. And so that, I think, is a very good reason to see uh, you know, kind of world as, as meaning the world system opposed to God here. Um, and uh, thanks, thanks, Katie. In the interest of time, I, I probably should pause right here. Um, let, me, let me just say a little bit really quickly about uh, kind of the, what, what that love is like. Um, th- this is from a, a pastor named Sam Storms. And he's kind of talking about how he uh, 
you know, kind of the thought process that went, he, that went on when he, when he chose to marry his wife. Among the many things that each of us highly valued would probably have included physical, physical health, intellectual abilities, personal traits such as kindness and humility, as well as those things that make compatibility possible. Spiritual commitment would also have ranked ex extremely high in both of our assessments to each other, and I hope that he means that that would have been essential. Um, but I can assure you that neither of us said anything along, along the lines of the following. Of the many traits and features of the person that I hope to marry, what I'm really looking for is a person who utterly despises me. I want a man or a woman who is worse than indifferent towards me. I'm hoping for someone who hates me, who treats me with contempt and disdain, and who wants nothing whatsoever uh, to do with me. But God did. When the father sought a bride for his son, he set his affection and love on a people who were his enemies. He loved a world that hated him. His heart was moved towards those who felt bitter enmity for him and refused to honor him for being, uh, who refused to honor him as the most honorable being in the universe. God chose to love his enemies. For God so loved this fallen, corrupt, wicked world. Such was the nature of the immeasurable love which he has for us. So I'll, I'll go ahead and close there. And uh, since the service needs to get set up, I'm not going to have time for questions out loud, but I'd be happy to catch anyone afterwards. Thanks.